Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's the biggest week of the sports calendar. We got college football in full swing, pro football in full swing, the start of basketball season, start of hockey season, baseball playoffs, and the WNBA Finals between the Liberty and the Aces. BetOnline Sportsbook has you covered, and if you use our promo code BLEAVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, you can get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description of this episode, no matter the sport. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. It's the whole purpose of this podcast thing. You can listen however and whenever it is that you may be choosing, and we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever it is that you may be choosing. Welcome, 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 everybody. That music means it's an NFL Monday, and we are super pumped to have you along with us here on this fun-filled NFL Monday for week 6.5. That's week 7 of college football, week 6 in the NFL. We've got a great show planned for you. Wasn't a ton in the college football world to break down this week. We had the USC Trojans being exposed and me being right about that. We had Washington beating Oregon, which I was right about as well, chatting with Razor Rosenthal, although if you got Washington at three and a half, you lost. But if you got Washington at three, you would have had a push. But Washington did win. Like I said, Washington, best chance of any Pac-12 team to make it to the playoff this year. Check that box for the University of Washington. Yeah, it was week seven in college football, week six in the NFL. We're going to break it all down here today on the show. We've got a Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award to hand out. And uh, there was a few options to pick from this week. So uh, we'll do that later on in the show as well. Kicking things off here, it's just kind of a yucky Sunday of NFL football, and I don't want to say that to kind of like bemoan the content that we're going to have on the show, but I was just, when I sit down to do these shows, I look around at what games were played, uh, what mediocre football I avoided except for catching it on the red zone, what are some of the storylines of the day, all sorts of stuff like that, and uh, the takeaways that I had at this point was... Yeah, this game, this week was kind of yucky. Not in terms of the product on the field, although Vikings thirteen Bears or Vikings nineteen Bears thirteen was a pretty yucky game. Uh, the games themselves weren't necessarily that yucky. It was just like you know you had three quarterbacks who went out 
pretty early. I mean, you had Ryan Tannehill have an injury that looked pretty bad. You had Justin Fields go out of the game for the Bears, and like any chance the Bears had of winning against the Vikings before Justin Fields got hurt, well, the, the most talented player on your entire football team goes out. They had a guy who I literally learned who he, wa- who he was during this game. Uh, I believe his name is Tyson Bagdett. Bagant, Tyson Bagant is the backup quarterback for the Chicago Bears. I thought it was P.J. Walker, and then P.J. Walker was apparently no longer a Chicago Bear, was starting for another team this week. Like, Tyson Bagant is the backup for the Bears, and that was kind of yucky. You had uh, Jimmy Garoppolo have to go to the hospital, which was super yucky. And, you know, the well, actually, at, uh, full disclosure, at the time we're recording this right now, the Patriots are about to run a two-minute drill against Vegas it's 223 they're down two points so the Patriots might actually come back and win this game Uh, by the end of this segment you'll have the answer as to whether the Patriots ended up winning this game but you know we always record the NFL Monday podcast after the the bulk of the games but before Sunday night football so we never get Sunday night football analysis in here but uh Mac Jones got 91 yards to go in about two minutes and 23 seconds so I guess we'll get to watch this live on the air I didn't think that this game would come up very much on today's show but you know what we got Mac Jones uh, trying to lead the the two-minute drill for the New England Patriots with no timeouts but again Jimmy Garoppolo went out with a back injury and and they said he had to go to the hospital which is kind of icky so like you had that icky part of the game you had the the weird weather in certain places like the Seattle Cincinnati game was a game that I, I walked away feeling like it wasn't representative of either team this year. However, now Seattle is three and three and the Bengals are three and three and it feels like all is right in the or sorry, the Seahawks are three and two because they had a bye week. So it feels like all is right in the universe with those two results where like the Bengals probably deserve to be about three and three at this point and the Seahawks deserve to be about three and two and you know Seattle had one play at the end of the game to try and win and they didn't get it and so the Bengals get the win but it was just one of those one score games with weather and it was 17-13 and I feel like I didn't learn very much about either team team um there the Saints and Texans game it was three to three uh both teams are now three and three it was 13-20 neither quarterback played particularly well by the way CJ Stroud finally threw an interception but neither quarterback played particularly well and now both teams are three and three and it feels like both teams deserve to be three and three uh the the Buccaneers put up six points against the Lions and that feels pretty representative of what they are closer than you know the the games they've had so far this year because Tampa Bay if I'm looking at them from like trying to pinpoint what kind of team they are they haven't really been that bad I mean they're three and one they came off the bye week and the teams they beat are a combined well, the Saints have a bunch of wins. I guess the Saints are 3-3, three and three, but they beat the Vikings, who have two wins. They beat the Bears, who have one win. And each uh, the Vikings, one of their wins was against the Bears. Uh, they have a point differential this year of now, if I'm doing the 3-2 and two math correct, they have a point differential sitting at negative, so let's see, 3, 14, 17, 7, 17, 24. They have a point spread sitting at plus 10 right now, which I feel like is pretty okay for the time being for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They've 
beat the brakes off the Saints. They got the brakes beat off them by the Lions. But again, six points, yucky game. So it just felt like it was a yucky, yucky week, and I just kind of zoomed past this. And so in my mind, I was thinking, oh, the other thing that happened this week was right when I said this is where the Colts, I think, have a chance to win the AFC South, the Jaguars pick up right where they left off last season and have now won three games in a row, and Trevor Lawrence is back to playing like an above-average quarterback, and the Colts looked awful, and they were down like 31-6 to right when I was ready to buy stock in the Colts and say that this was a really talented team two years ago, and then they fi- they switched their quarterback for a capable backup in Gardner Minshew, and even if Anthony Richardson is out for the season, they can still win the AFC South. Yeah, no, none of that mattered. The Colts got the shit beat out of them. So the game I was most excited to watch from the Pyramid Scheme AFC, just when I pretended to get excited about the AFC South, just when I convinced myself that the AFC South could be interesting, the Colts came out and just laid an egg and just verified that, yeah, the Jaguars are going to win that division by default and there'll be a pyramid scheme three seed or a pyramid scheme four seed who's going to lose to an AFC wild card. So even the game that I was like fake getting enthusiastic about and believing in the Colts, buying stock in the Colts, the Colts came out and laid an egg and so there was nothing to watch late in the game. Uh, Even that was a bit of a disappointment. And so... It just felt yucky in that sense. Three of the games had wacky weather. Three of the games had a quarterback that got hurt. Uh, the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who were three and one, so you could like think that Lions and Bucks was a close matchup. They laid an egg. Colts were three and two. Jaguars were three and two. The Colts laid an egg. Uh, the Dolphins were exciting because they put up forty two on the Panthers. Like just going through things to talk about. There wasn't really anything interesting. And I thought, you know, maybe we'll do a, uh, maybe we'll do a eulogy for the Carolina Panthers since they're now zero and six or whatever. Um, but there is one interesting point that I wanted to touch on here in the early part of the show. And I know we just kind of knocked out like nine of the games here in the first 10 minutes of the show. Um, but there is one game that I thought was interesting, and it was San Francisco against Cleveland. And this is the part that sucks about this being interesting. We have said from the very beginning of last season, we ain't talking about Cleveland on this show. The reason we ain't talking about Cleveland on this show is because of what Cleveland did when they invited a sexual predator into their locker room while he was going through the civil lawsuits and three days after he had settled his criminal law or he had uh, not been facing criminal charges. He didn't settle those. He just hadn't been facing criminal charges. Right as that was happening, the Cleveland Browns gave up everything they had paid a record-setting contract, enabled and protected Deshaun Watson's bad behavior at every turn. And so because of that, that felt like something that we did not want to invite on the show. And regardless of whether people felt that the suspension was too lenient or too strict, wherever people put their morals in whatever place, going into this season, Deshaun Watson being on the field in the first place was the act of defiance itself. It wasn't the suspension being too long or too short or him coming or whether he should be still suspended right now, just him being on the field period is an act of defiance. And regardless of whether he plays well or plays bad or should be suspended or shouldn't be suspended, him being out there in the first place is a constant reminder of the NFL enabling and protecting him 
in coordination with the Cleveland Browns. And so the way that I just I felt was the best way to work this for me is I don't think we should talk about Cleveland as a football team without talking about Cleveland and everything happening with Deshaun Watson. Because as we reported on on dozens of podcasts over the last year, this is a sports story for a generation that went under the rug, we didn't follow up on after the results had been determined, and now we're kind of left in purgatory with how to navigate. As sports media at large, I've heard other media platforms much larger than this talk about the same problems, is how best to navigate the icky aftermath of Deshaun Watson returning to the sport and having to sidestep talking about everything that happened to him over the last four years, 26 lawsuits of sexual of nonviolent sexual assault as deemed by uh, the independent arbiter by the NFL, 26 cases of sexual assault on lawsuits, over 30 if you add up women who didn't pursue the lawsuit, but reporting done by Jenny Vrentes of Sports Illustrated and now the New York Times brought to light, uh, reporting done by Real Sports with Brian Gumbel and all sorts of other news outlets and media platforms uh, and the reporting they've done around it. And again, we did dozens of podcasts following that saga. Uh, When he was set to return last year, we did a full podcast detailing all of our reporting and detailed podcasts over the last three No, not really three years. I should say more two years. Uh, It was March of 2021 until October, November of 2022. So about 20 months, 21 months worth of following that story and doing dozens and dozens of podcasts around it. And so we decided that the best way to navigate Cleveland is just by not talking about them on the football side of the field. And I know that Mina Kimes talked about how the the compromise she made with herself and her own morality is that if we're doing like a one minute segment on Cleveland, we can mention him in the play of the team. But if we're doing a longer form conversation about the Browns, 15, 20 minutes long, it's important to talk about what's going on with Watson. And I think that that's a fair compromise morality wise, especially when you are compromised morality wise in having to be a league partner and talking about the sport itself and trying to navigate around everything that's happening in Cleveland. And so I made the call that if we're going to just talk X's and O's football, we're just not going to acknowledge the existence of Cleveland. It worked great last year. I didn't watch any Cleveland games, tried to avoid them on the red zone, didn't focus on talking about them at all. They were an irrelevant team and we didn't have to focus on them at all. And this year, Deshaun Watson comes back and we decided, or at least I made the executive decision, yeah, it's better to just not talk about them. If we're going to do X's and O's football analysis, we're just not going to mention Cleveland. I bring all of that up to say, because I want to talk about 49ers in Cleveland, we're just going to put Cleveland to the side. Pretend like Cleveland was just a participant in the game. They were there. They played. Even though the sexual predator was out with a shoulder injury, we're just going to put Cleveland off to the side. Not going to do analysis of Cleveland beating the last undefeated team in the AFC, or I guess NFC, but the Eagles are technically undefeated. By the way, I'm recording this. The Eagles are 14-12 against the Jets, so I don't even know if the Eagles are still undefeated right now. Just going to put Cleveland to the side. Just going to put Cleveland to the side. All of that is a preemptive way of saying, now let's bring the 49ers into focus. Now let's bring San Francisco into the forefront here, because... 
San Francisco had the game that everyone kept saying San Francisco wouldn't have all season long. The game where they played in sloppy weather, the second half of the game was terrible, they lost on a field goal, and Brock Purdy played like shit. The game that people said would never happen to San Francisco. San Francisco was too talented up and down the roster to ever have to play a game quite like that. Where you can look at the end of the game and say, yes, their offense cost them the game. Yes, you can pin the loss on Brock Purdy. Yes, you can pin the loss on the kicking game. Yes, you can pin the loss on all of that. And the injuries to Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel. Just altogether like a worst case scenario week for the San Francisco 49ers. And what I found so interesting about this game is that because of how wacky the weather was and because it was a one-score game that was basically a coin flip game, a coin flip decides that game. I mean, if Moody's kick had a 50-50 chance of making it, the kick was no good, and then if he makes it, they win the game and they walk away with a stolen victory against Cleveland. But the thing that I think is so interesting about this from the San Francisco standpoint is until the final drive of the game where they ran the two-minute drill, Brock Purdy had one passing yard in the second half of the game. One single passing yard in the game. The 49ers got a touchdown in the second half thanks to an interception by P.J. Walker. A turnover set them up for their only touchdown of the half, and I think it was J.P. Mason who had the score, and... The offense just couldn't do anything for San Francisco. With Christian McCaffrey battling injuries, Brock Purdy had one yard passing in the second half until two minutes left in the game when he had to run a two-minute drill. San Francisco played awful. They showed on the broadcast there were more penalties between the two teams. I think it was like 23 accepted penalties. For more yards, it was over 200. More accepted penalties and more yards worth of penalties in that game between San Francisco and Cleveland than any game in the NFL all season long. So just tons of penalties. One yard passing by Brock Purdy. Crazy sloppy weather with 20 mile an hour winds and rain. And San Francisco, a team that was eight and a half point favorites coming into the game, found themselves in one of those classic flip-a-coin one-possession games unlike they had seen since Brock Purdy had taken over as quarterback at the end of last season. I just think that's so interesting because in what in what world of this sport does a team not get to play by those rules? Even Kansas City at home against Detroit had one of those coin flip one possession games. It's the NFL. Random crazy shit happens all the time. The Panthers were up 14-0 on the Dolphins at the end of the first quarter. A game that was totally uncontested the rest of the way. 42-7. Dolphins beat the crap out of the Panthers. The best offense in the NFL against the worst defense in the NFL. Just beat the living crap out of them. By the way, side note, Mac Jones got sacked for a safety at the end of the game. Against the Raiders, leading a two-minute drill, got sacked in the end zone. Not great. But the point being for the San Francisco 49ers is that in what world does a team never get to be put in that scenario? And honestly, most people thought that they weren't going to be in that scenario all season because 
If you look at the record, the San Francisco 49ers were 5-0 and coming into this game. 5-0 and team, record as the basic stat that doesn't always tell you how good or bad a team is. Like, there's nerd stats that are better at analyzing how good or bad a team is based on their performance. Expected win-loss record, SRS ranking, DVOA are some of my favorite nerd stats. If you go by the wins and losses, Niners are the best team in the NFL. If you go by most points scored per game, San Francisco 49ers, best in the NFL. If you go by defensive points allowed going into week fifth, uh, going into week six, San Francisco 49ers, number one in the league. If you look at the nerd stats, SRS ranking, we looked up the, the SRS rankings going into this week, which if, for those who don't know, SRS ranking is if you took every team in the league and played them against a perfectly league average opponent in every statistical category, if you put them against a perfectly average team and you had them play on a neutral field, what would the point spread be for that team? In SRS ranking, not only were the San Francisco 49ers the number one team in the league, they were number one in the league by seven points. Number two was Buffalo at 11.03. San Francisco was 18.05. San Francisco was by far the best team in the NFL according to wins and losses, points per game scored, points per game allowed, And even the nerd stats, every stat in the NFL was backing up the fact that through five games, the San Francisco 49ers were the best team in the NFL, had scored 30 or more points in all five games, untested by any opponent they had played, ran roughshod over the Steelers, ran roughshod over the Giants, ran roughshod over the Cardinals, ran roughshod over the Cowboys. Uh, who is their week two opponent that I'm blanking on? Oh, ran rough shot over the Rams. Apart from a brief moment where they didn't hold the lead in that game for one minute and 45 seconds. Going into this week against Cleveland, San Francisco 49ers had not held a lead in a game for one minute and 45 seconds. That's not technically true because of ties, but the San Francisco 49ers had been trailing in a game for one minute and 45 seconds all season long. They were by far the best team in the NFL, and Brock Purdy had never been tested as a quarterback. And we've said the same thing since last year. Brock Purdy is better than Jimmy Garoppolo. We have a representative sample size to prove that. Jimmy Garoppolo, a quarterback in the same offense last year for the same number of games, was about 10th in passer rating, 10th in yards per completion, Brock Purdy was number one in yards per completion, number one in passer rating, number one in QBR last year. Brock Purdy was clearly better than Jimmy Garoppolo in the same offense. Better than Jimmy Garoppolo, not as good as Patrick Mahomes, somewhere in between. And most people had kind of settled on the fact that Brock Purdy was hanging around like the, I mean, there were debates about Justin Herbert, there were debates about Lamar Jackson, there were some people saying that Mac Jones in that offense would look just as good as Brock Purdy. There's a wide spectrum of people who don't have a representative sample size to figure out where Brock Purdy falls in this wild grand scheme of things for the San Francisco 49er offense. And that's why I put him in the same group as like Jalen Hurts and Tua. I recognize that they are good at football. 
I also recognize they have very, very talented players all across their team. And wouldn't you know, the Philadelphia Eagles, who are, as of this recording, six minutes away from potentially losing to the New York Jets in a 14-12 slop fest where the Jets have kicked four field goals and the Eagles' offense has looked as constipated as Brock Purdy and the 49ers did in the middle of a slop fest. Jalen Hurts has had bad games. Brock Purdy has had now a bad game. Tua has had bad games and bad mistakes. Mike McDaniel is squeezing the bad mistakes out of Tua in the offense. But basically my thoughts on Brock Purdy at this point is just wherever you put Tua is wherever you put Brock Purdy in the grand scheme of who the best quarterbacks in the league are. And what's so interesting about the Brock Purdy standpoint of this is people not only had no representative sample size of Brock Purdy having a bad game, like his worst passer rating since he took over as the starting quarterback was, I believe, a 91.6. And that 91.6, or sorry, 91.8. 91.8 is league average. Brock Purdy's worst career performance was league average. And this game against the Cleveland football team, he was awful. Awful, awful, awful in that game. The San Francisco 49ers on offense had seven points in the second half, and they were set up by an interception by, uh, who was that? I'm trying to remember. Was that, uh, I think that was Demo Lenore who had the interception for the San Francisco 49ers. The San Francisco 49ers had one passing yard from the start of the second half until two minutes to go in the second half. Brock Purdy finished with a passer rating of 55.3, which, by the way, still outperformed the Cleveland quarterback, P.J. Walker. However, Brock Purdy finished with a 55.3 passer rating. Christian McCaffrey had 43 rushing yards, and left the game with an injury. Brandon Ayuk had four catches for 76 yards as the leading receiver in a game where they completed 125 passing yards. Debo Samuel had two carries for 11 yards and left the game with injury. And they, the 49ers as a team played awful. Awful, awful, awful football. And that was the first time that they had played a game like that. And most people thought that game wasn't going to come. People thought that the 49ers weren't going to play a game like that all season long. And I thought that was a really weird way to look at the Niners team is that they are so good that they will never be tested. And I'm not sure exactly where that, I don't know exactly where the expectations are on this when people are, People are very confused by what to make of the 49ers, period. And so I don't understand where the expectations go from here, where they view this team, or what context is going to be applied to the game today. But the thing that I think is a bigger takeaway is like, hey, they the 49ers almost survived having a bad game by Brock Purdy. And while it has no evaluation on how good or bad the team is, like I said, crazy weather game, on the like crazy weather game, 
where the quarterback played bad, and oh, by the way, Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel got hurt, which is the bigger concern than anything else. And by the way, both teams combined had more penalties than any team in any game all season long. Like, just a weird game with no real representation of how good or bad the 49ers are. Even in a weird game that doesn't have much to do about how good or bad the team is. And even in a weird game like that, where they don't end up winning because of a missed field goal or a or a bad call at the end of the game, even in that world, I still feel like the San Francisco 49ers have a lot of interesting points to take away. And maybe we didn't do the greatest job of giving that analysis here over the last 12 minutes or so, but I think there's so many interesting points to take away this game. From the fact that Brock Purdy finally played a bad game and people have that representative sample size, the fact that it you do feel a little bit closer to understanding how good or bad Brock Purdy is as a quarterback now that we're six games into the season and 12 games into his NFL career. We're starting to build out a representative sample size, and now that it's not all the team is so dominant that the performance of the quarterback is hard to pin down, now that it's not a game like that, regardless of result and regardless of circumstance, it just makes it easier to be like, hey, we're starting to build out a representative sample size not just on Brock Purdy, but also on how good or bad this 49ers team is. Because I've said this for years with San Francisco. NFL offense is really hard to understand. Now imagine an offense that NFL people don't understand with Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers. Then throw in the fact that, for some reason, bad quarterbacks do better in that offense than really talented quarterbacks. Jimmy Garoppolo and Kirk Cousins fit better in that offense than Tom Brady. Or guy they traded three first-round picks for, like Trey Lance. Or if Russell Wilson had been in that offense, Russell Wilson. It's something that is counterintuitive. Quarterbacks with more talent tend to do more poorly in that offense. It's super counterintuitive to our basic understandings of football. So now you have an offense that doesn't make any sense. With a quarterback that everyone was divi- was divided on for years and years with Jimmy Garoppolo. You're stuck in Jimmy Garoppolo purgatory. Some think he's good, some think he's bad, but they don't want to risk it and get a better option than him. And then, when you do move on from Jimmy Garoppolo, you don't actually move on from him because you kept Trey Lance in the fold for all those years. And or I'm sorry, you bring in Trey Lance, then start Garoppolo for a season, then keep Garoppolo as the backup, and when Trey Lance finally gets the starting job and breaks his leg, now we're back to Jimmy Garoppolo two years after we tried to move on from him in the NFL draft. I understand why it's so hard to evaluate the 49ers. I understand why people are quick to try and figure out how good or bad the 49ers are, or how much Diamador Lenore and Talanoa Hufunga added to the team will make a difference compared to the team two years ago. Like, I understand why they're so interesting because they're so clearly the most talented team in the NFL that just farts out pro bowlers on both sides of the ball. I understand why we're so curious by this team. I understand why there's so many questions about it, but we just got to wait for them to build out a representative sample size. And it's games like today where the quarterback played like shit in a really weird environment that actually feel like we're getting closer to having a real pinpoint analysis on how good Brock Purdy is. We still don't have it yet. He's. I would say the safe bet is to say that he's in the group of Jalen Hurts and Tua Tagovailoa of they are very good, they are also surrounded by very talented players, and that helps your performance and abilities in situations where you otherwise might have failed. 
I say all of that to say we're starting to build out a representative sample size, and I think that it's very interesting to watch happen in real time because no one really quite knows how to pin down where things stand for the San Francisco 49ers. But them losing that game where the quarterback played like shit, a worst-case scenario game basically is the way to describe it. A worst-case scenario game like that I think is infinitely fascinating when we're doing the analysis on what kind of team the 49ers are and what kind of team they will be going forward. That, I think, is interesting because now that we're six games into the season and 12 games into the current concoction of the 49ers team with Christian McCaffrey, Brock Purdy, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, Trent Williams on offense, now that we're 12 games into that new fangled 49ers and George Kittle, forgot George Kittle, and Kyle Juszczyk, they have a lot of pro bowlers on that team, but a team that's now built around Brock Purdy and Christian McCaffrey, which previously... Neither of those players were even on the radar 12 months ago. Yeah, 12 months ago, Christian McCaffrey was wasting away in Carolina after they had just fired Matt Rule and Brock Purdy was a third-string quarterback. Like, 12 months ago, this Niner team, as presently constructed, did not run an offense at all like the one they're running today. It's like Kyle Shanahan has reinvented that offense that they're running. And now that we're slowly starting to build out a representative sample size, it's interesting to, in real time, watch the analysis start to make a little bit more sense on the Niners. The best team in the NFL that is also capable of, under the worst-case scenarios, losing to a team that is on the fringes of the playoffs. And piece by piece, we're starting to build out a representative sample size of what the most talented team in football may look like come playoff time. Because remember last year, the most talented team in football was the Buffalo Bills. The SRS ranking had them at number one. The expected win-loss record had them at number one. DVOA had them at number one. And Buffalo, for the third year in a row, finished third place in the AFC playoffs. Does that mean the San Francisco 49ers will be subjected to the same fate? Time will tell. Maybe they'll make the Super Bowl as the most talented team in football. Maybe they'll be the third best team in the NFC. Time will tell. And I know that's not a great answer for people who want to know how good or bad Brock Purdy is, but time will tell. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to award, as we do every week, the Philip Rivers Memorial Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award for week six of the 2023 NFL season. For those who are new to the show, this is an award we hand out every week to the quarterback who found himself down six, no timeouts, one minute to play needing to go the length of the field. As Philip Rivers spent the final 10 years of his career playing in every single week, and as Kirk Cousins has played in pretty much every single week since Philip Rivers retired. This is the, like, 12th best quarterback in the NFL whose team is down by six and needs to lead a 90-yard drive in 60 seconds. Will they get it? Will they not? It's besides the point. Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't, but they will always find themselves down six, no timeouts with one minute to play. This week, there were a couple of options to pick from. The New Orleans Saints were down seven with one timeout and a minute to play with their car running. More conventional two-minute drill is what I would say. 
wasn't quite Kirk Cousins purgatory. It was more of a two-minute drill for Derek Carr. But Derek Carr did find himself down seven, one minute to play, with one timeout and needing to go the length of the field. And under a normal week, Derek Carr might have won this award. Just like Geno Smith might have won the Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award this week. Two minutes to play, one timeout, length of the field, drove the Seahawks into Bengals territory, had three cracks at the end zone with 30 seconds to play, didn't get it. Bengals held on to win in a game that felt like a market correction week for both of those teams, as we mentioned earlier. And under a normal week, Geno Smith's two-minute drill might have won the Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award, but this week we had a true Kirk Cousins Purgatory situation. Six-point deficit, one minute to play, no timeouts, length of the field, Desmond Ritter, Atlanta Falcons, losing to Washington, a game where Desmond Ritter played like absolute shit. Threw for 300 yards, team only scored 16 points. Really bad game for the Atlanta Falcons. But yet they found themselves down six, no timeouts, one minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. And Desmond Ritter threw a god-awful interception to lose the game with 30 seconds to play. Congrats, Desmond Ritter, your first Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award of the season, and what I assume will be your last, because Taylor Heineke's replacing you soon enough. Real quick before we head out here, I mentioned earlier that we had the Eagles and Jets game coming down to the end while we were recording here on the show. Uh, so the Philadelphia Eagles were up 14-12 to with 1 minute and 50 seconds to play. No timeouts left for the Jets. And the Eagles threw an interception that went back to the Jet 5-yard line. One of the most baffling plays I've seen in a while from Jalen Hurts. Because the Eagles are looking like they're going to lose this game. It's 4th and 8. They got one timeout left. They got to pick up the first down right now. Jalen Hurts is kind of doing Kirk Cousins purgatory here. We might have to revise that segment we just did with Desmond Ritter down eight because Jalen Hurts is one penalty away from a true Kirk Cousins purgatory situation. But the Eagles didn't really do this by punting the ball. They did it by throwing a basically pick six on their own. Jalen's just going to chuck it deep, and that's the game? Wow. That was just stupid. Jesus, Philadelphia, that was bad at the end of the game. Jalen Hurts threw a pick. Uh, The missed field goal by Jake Elliott would have put them up five. That was just an awful game by the Eagles. Man, like I know we just talked about the Brock Purdy analysis of like not being indicative of the team at all. Like it's not raining in New York. The Jets are not good on... The Jets didn't have an offensive touchdown the entire game. I mean, the interception that Jalen Hurts threw was basically a pick six. Like, they got tackled at the five-yard line, but, like, that shit was basically a pick six. They let Brees Hall go in uh, without uh, touching him at the end because it was better to have him score than to not have him score. Like, 
that was basically a pick six. The Jets didn't have an offensive touchdown in the entire game. And the Eagles fucking lost. They lost, like, really embarrassingly, like a pick six at the end of the game when you had a two-point lead and, like, two minutes to play. Like, a missed field goal by Jake Elliott that was, like, 40-some-odd yards away. Like, that was a really fucked-up loss by the Eagles. I'm just saying, like, watching it in real time, I wish we had waited to record this podcast. I would have loved to have thrown the Eagles into the mix on that entire 49er segment we just did. Damn, that was, like, really bad, Philly. That shit was terrible. They just lost that game to the... The Jets are 3-3, three and three too. There's so many 3-3 three and three teams in the NFL that deserve to be 3-3. Three and three. Like, once we get to get up out the paint week, which is, like, the week that one result happens that knocks four teams out of the playoff picture, once we get to get up out the paint week, there's going to be a lot of contenders in that group. The Saints are 3-3. Three and three. The Titans are 2-4 and four now. The Falcons and Commanders are 3-3 three and three, thanks to Desmond Ritter's Kirk Cousins purgatory. The Bengals are 3-3, three and three. Seahawks are 3-2, and two. Colts are 3-3, three and three. Saints are 3-3, three and three. Texans are 3-3, three and three. the Raiders are 3-3, three and three. the Bucks are 3-2. and two. Man, uh, the, the Cowboys and Chargers are both 500 right now, like the Cowboys are 3-2, and two. the Chargers are 2-2, two and two. one of those teams is going to win, one of those teams is going to lose on Monday, so either the Cowboys are going to be 3-3, three and three, or the Chargers are going to be 2-3. and three. Like, there's just a lot of teams that are going to be there for get up out the paint week. The Steelers are three and two, and like I said last week, I don't understand how the fuck the Steelers are three and two at this point. Uh, the Rams are three and three now after beating the Cardinals. Oh wow, they outscored the Cardinals twenty zero in the second half. I stopped watching that game twenty zero. Kieran Williams, okay, Kieran Williams had a big day. Okay, good on the Rams. Rams are three and like there's a lot of just average right now. Like outside of the six really good teams in the sport, there's a whole lot of average in the NFL right now. Teams like six to six to twenty one. All pretty blah at this point. The Packers are on bye this week. They're three and two, I want to say at this. No, they're two and three. They lost to the Raiders. They're two and three. Uh, teams like five through twenty-one are all just blah this year, man. Even the good teams, I mean, shit, the Eagles are supposed to be one of the really good teams. They didn't put up anything against the Jets. Jets might be hanging around a little longer than we thought, huh? Can't just write them off yet because now they beat the beat the Eagles in a game. The Eagles, even though the Eagles played like crap, they still should have won. I mean, Elliott missed a field goal in the fourth quarter. Jalen Hurts threw a pick six with two minutes to play. In what world is Jalen Hurts throwing a pick six with two minutes to play and his team has the lead? Like, that was crazy. The last play of the game, they just threw a, like, 40-yard bomb in the double coverage. It's just really weird. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast here on an NFL Monday. I'll leave a five-star review, leave a download, any and all support. Greatly, greatly appreciated here on this fine program. Uh, we will talk to you again on Wednesday. Wednesday's the next time we'll be hitting you up on the show, and uh, we appreciate you guys stopping in. And in the meantime, take it easy. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today 
I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray Right through the very heart of it New York, New York Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.